I'll get into the word. I don't want to waste your time. I honor it. I honor this church and I honor the pastor. And anytime I'm invited to preach, it's a special honor to me. But when you're invited to preach on a Sunday morning, it's even more of a special honor because that's pastor time. And so I want to honor that and uh, give you some fresh bread this morning. I will meet you in the 11th chapter of John in probably one of the most famous miracles of Jesus. If you don't know the 11th chapter of John, you know it. You just may not know that you know it. The 11th chapter of John is almost entirely the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, I don't want to walk you through the story of Lazarus today from top to bottom, and I don't intend to read the entire story today from top to bottom, but I do want to focus in on a conversation between an individual that's at Lazarus's tomb and the Jesus that empties Lazarus's tomb because when we see individuals in the Bible confronting Jesus, it's ready-made fodder to put yourself into the shoes of the individual because these are human beings interacting with God on the earth and you are a human being interacting with God in you. And so you get to put yourself into the stories of Jesus as the audience. Now, I know that sounds like a great thing and it's wonderful and good, but sometimes we don't... Uh, we don't recognize it uh, easily, but sometimes we're not the best people in every story. Uh, that, if we're reading the Bible honestly, we're not just the heroes in the story. We're not just the people that get it right. Sometimes we're going to be the people that get it wrong. I'm going a long way around saying sometimes you're going to be in the story with Pharisees in it. You're going to be the Pharisee. Okay? If you can accept that when you open your Bible, then the Bible has something to say to you. It's, what we, it's when we reject what might be said to me and which position that I get to fall into in the story that it, it says something only to other people. So if every time you read the Bible it speaks to other people, you need to stop and talk to the Father. I've been in those seasons of my life where I'm, I'm reading going, boy, I wish Brother So-and-so would read this chapter. Boy, I wish that church down the street knew this story right here. And enough of that, and you'll hear the sound of the Holy Spirit knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And goes, why don't you let me in to dine with you? Let's eat together. You're in the story. You just keep putting other people in the story. So let's don't put other people in it today. Let's volunteer to jump into the role ourselves, put ourselves into this story, and confront a moment in the ministry of Jesus. Because what I want to talk to you about today is something that we all have, something that is part of our identity, but we haven't all attained. And that sounds like an oxymoron. Those two things don't sound like they can go together. Something I have, but I haven't attained. Something I am, but that I don't put my hands on. I don't even have a real good illustration in the natural world to illustrate what I mean in the realm of the spirit. But something that I have that is my identity, that is a part of what I am day to day, but yet I haven't reached out and really comprehended it and really grasped it, and that is resurrection. I have resurrection in Christ, but I will admit to you, I have not fully, theologically, practically, in common sense terms, reached out and grasped what resurrection fully means for Paul White. I've been a believer for nearly four decades, which means my consciousness of resurrection is about 40 years old. I know resurrection is part of my salvation. I can give you a bunch of scriptures that confirm my resurrection in Christ's resurrection. But for much of my 40 years, my resurrection has been an event I hope someday, I know it'll happen, but I'm hoping for someday because I believe that God resurrects the dead. And so my theology of resurrection has been, oh yes, my resurrection's in Christ, but my real resurrection will come someday after I've died and they've put my body into the ground. And maybe it'll be centuries from now. Does this sound familiar? Maybe it'll be millennium from now after I've went back to being dust and someday my spirit man will come rushing into my brand new body and I'll be resurrected on the earth. And so for me, I know resurrection is my reality, but I can't possess that resurrection because for so much of those 40 years, resurrection has been an event. I want to hone in on that word. You could underline that in bold in your mind. Resurrection has been an event. And when is that event? 
Well, on the timeline of Paul White's life, that event hasn't happened. That's the way I've looked at resurrection. That event is in my future. I want to pause there for a moment. I want to ask you a question. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago on our timeline, and he completed the finished work, what we like to call the finished work, call it death, burial, resurrection, but let's just focus on the cross for a moment. Let's just set it by itself, that moment on the cross. Are you convinced that Jesus will never do that again? I've not been in a place yet where anyone disagreed with that statement. It's one of the tenets of our faith. That Jesus died on a cross how many times? Once. For all. For all time. How many of you believe, and I know I'm stretching the borders just a little bit here, but I don't think too far. How many of you believe that when he died, he died for all the sins that had been committed? All of the sins that were being committed? And all of the sins that ever would be committed? Now, if the answer to that is no, I don't believe in that, then your first answer needs to change because Jesus needs to die at least twice or three times or four times or five times. I mean, in practical terms, if his death is a finished work and he's only died once and it was for what was in front, what was going on and what was to come, then his death crossed all of time. Correct. Let's stretch the borders a bit more. When you accept Christ and you receive him as your Savior, whatever that looks like for you, maybe that was a sinner's prayer. Maybe that was your water baptism. Maybe that's just been this slow journey that you've had of just starting to believe in that Jesus. I just, I believe in that Jesus. I don't know how that happened. I don't even know when it happened. I'm just starting to believe in that Jesus. And you begin to have a revelation that Jesus' death effectively ended something in you. Because that's really what salvation is. You either, it ended my sinning, it ended my sinner, it ended my death. It ended the old me. we got a lot of ways to say this. It killed my sin nature. It crucified my old man, etc., etc. Insert your way of saying, I met him at Calvary, right? Because that's what salvation is. I met him at Calvary. Now, you've already admitted Jesus only died once, and you admitted that Jesus died for the stuff that hadn't even happened yet, and you're the thing that hadn't happened yet. And when you accepted that Jesus then, the death that happened in you happened where on the timeline? 2,000 years ago. But that death happened in you, right? It didn't, it had happened before you ever accepted it, but it happened in you. And when it happened in you, it really was you walking into it. It didn't re-happen. I'm going the long way around to try to lay this out. The cross didn't happen again when you got saved, did it? It had already happened. You just entered in to what had already happened. So why is your resurrection in your future if your crucifixion's in your past? It's just a question, and I know it's rhetorical, and I'm not waiting for hands to go up. I just want you to marinate it for a moment. I mean, you readily admitted that the cross literally happened in your past, but spiritually happened for everything before it, during it, and after it, and that when you entered into the cross, Jesus didn't re-die. You just woke up, you just actually went into the death that he'd already died. So if the cross happened for all time, why is the resurrection different? Maybe we should start over. Maybe the resurrection isn't different than the cross. In fact, maybe the cross isn't even complete without the resurrection. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ be not risen from the dead, you are still in your sins. So maybe the resurrection is an event that happened on the timeline of humanity in our past, but it's never going to happen again because Jesus isn't going to die twice, therefore Jesus isn't going to be resurrected twice. And if he died for sins before, sins during, and sins after, maybe he raised for those dead, those dying, and those who will die. Are we on at least the right track, it seems like? So that whenever you entered into his death, which by the way had already happened whether you like it or not, then you entering into his resurrection is a resurrection that has already happened in God whether you receive it or not. That's a good foundation today. It's not a whole sermon. It's just a snippet. It just gets us thinking in the direction towards a resurrection that might not need to be pinned on a calendar way out in the eternal future 
for physical or spiritual bodies, but might be as real as the cross is to you right now. Is the cross real to you right now? I propose that the message of the early church is the resurrection should be as real to you right now as the cross of Jesus Christ is to you right now, real in its scope and its relevance and its work. What the cross has done in you, likewise the resurrection has done in you. What has happened to you spiritually at Calvary has happened to you spiritually in the resurrection, and that is something you have, but you may not have attained. And we want to know what it looks like to attain it. So Jesus shows up at Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus intentionally waited four days, though he had every available opportunity to get there sooner. Because John 11 is an object lesson. It's really a lived parable. There's a story happening inside of the story. It is not simply that Jesus shows up late to his friend's sickness. It is that Jesus comes to show us something about resurrection that he doesn't show us in any other passage. When he heals Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old girl, and he raises her from the dead, he gives no message on resurrection. When he touches the casket of the widow's son at Nain as the funeral procession walks by and Jesus brushes his hand against the casket and the boy sets up and begins to talk, Jesus gives no theology of resurrection. But whenever he goes to Lazarus' tomb, he gives us his longest treatise on resurrection. And fascinatingly enough, it starts with a conversation with one of Lazarus' sisters, someone at the funeral, someone at the tomb, who engages Jesus. In John chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Let's read up to this conversation with just a little bit of context. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother than Martha. As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is absolutely true. We'd have no scriptural record that ever that anyone ever died in the presence of Jesus we can't say for sure if no one died in the presence of Jesus certainly before his baptism at Jordan you got to assume he went to someone's funeral in his life as a kid as a teenager as a young man but in the anointed ministry of Jesus we have no evidence that anyone dying in his presence in fact he died before the criminals on the cross I like the theory that he had to die before they did or they'd still be hanging there waiting to die because you don't die in the presence of Jesus. So Martha's not wrong. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus' response could have been, that's why I wasn't here. Because it's necessary for your brother to die in order for me to preach the object lesson sermon that I want to preach right now. So I stayed away so that he'd be nice and dead. Right? I stayed away so he'd be good and dead because I can't do what I need to do if he's anything less than good and dead. And by the way... God can't do what he needs to do in you unless you're good and dead. And this is why when we bring people to Christ, we bring them to Christ in the state of their deadness and their sin because he can't do anything with you unless you're good and dead. And so all of us have come to a place where we're good and dead so that there can be a great resurrection that occurs in our life. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. The 24th verse is where I want to focus in the beginning at this moment because I want you to notice Martha's admission and I want you to just admit for a moment maybe that you are Martha. This is where you get to put yourself into the story, okay? This is where we get to be involved in the Lazarus story. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I think Martha's comment is sad, not because of her theology. She misses the fact that the resurrection is standing in front of her. Who can blame her? She's never had the resurrection standing in front of her, at least not to her awareness. She's not able to grasp that yet. What's sad about Martha's conversation is this is exactly how I've heard the resurrection preached my entire 40 years in the church. And I want you to ask if it's the way you've heard it preached, because it sounds like this. I know that in the last day, we're going to rise again. And the whole house says, amen. Martha preached that sermon 2,000 years ago at Lazarus' tomb. 
It's Martha that says, you know when resurrection happens? It happens on the natural timeline. It happens at the last day. I have not only heard this preached, I've used this thought without even knowing I was using this thought at 90% of the funerals I've officiated in my ministry and stood over the body over at, the, tomb, at the, the gravesite and said, we know that brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so is going to resurrect in the last day. Who preached that? Martha. Now, the reason I say it's sad is not because Martha says it. It's sad that we keep amening it. And what I mean by that is that we keep doing what Martha did and putting the awareness of resurrection off on the timeline as if it will happen someday while we sit in the same church service and we're amening that, we're all going, the cross has already happened and I've already met my death in Jesus and we're separating the cross and the resurrection by what is now at least 2,000 years to where we've died in Christ but we haven't really resurrected in Christ. We haven't come out of the tomb. Now I know we're dealing with a real funeral in John 11. We're not dealing with some mist, some image, some spiritual funeral. We're dealing with a real funeral. So listen to a very real answer from Jesus in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. If this text stopped right here, let's leave it right there for a moment in verse 25. If it stopped right there, we have Jesus saying, I'm the one that because Lazarus believed in me and was my friend and we were close, he died, I'm going to make him live. And then if he just turned around and raised Lazarus from the dead, we wouldn't have a message to preach today because what we would have is you come out of your death, whatever that looks like, If you believed in Jesus before you died, you get to come out of your death someday. Jesus is the one that makes you come out of your death. But Jesus doesn't stop talking because Jesus is not just at a funeral raising someone from the dead. Jesus is at your funeral raising you from the dead. And when I say your funeral, I don't mean the funeral you're going to have in a funeral home someday. I mean the funeral over your old man, that old nature, that old Adam, that old you, that stuff I told you earlier we say is in Christ when we died. Jesus is officiating that man's funeral. That part of you, that old you that dies in Christ, Jesus, his next verse officiates your funeral. And it's this verse, verse 26. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Ooh, now we've changed the game. Whoever's alive and puts his faith in me never dies. And then this might be the most important question in Christianity. Do you believe this? So I want to ask you the question Jesus asks you in John 11. Do you believe this? Now be careful before you nod yes and say amen. I think you believe it. I know, I know fundamentally you believe it, but I want you to know what you're believing. I don't want us to just blindly believe it because we think it's a spiritual maxim we need in order to get to heaven. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. How many people have you met in your life that never died? Let's stay in the natural realm because Jesus is standing in the natural realm that day in John 11. How many people have you met who have never died? The answer to that, universally, zero. Hasn't happened yet. I've yet to come across anyone who has defied Father Time. They're now 700, 800, 900 years old. They're telling stories about the Middle Ages. They were there. It doesn't happen. We're blessed to see a certain age or an uncertain age, and we consider it impossible to make it to to any other distance. No matter how righteous, no matter how holy, no matter smoker, drinker, non-smoker, non-drinker, live like hell, live like heaven, everybody ends up in the same spot. You just may get there faster than everybody else, but... Or, or slower, but you, we all end up dead. So is Jesus telling the truth when he says, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die? Do you believe this? Now everyone started raising, shaking their head, yes, we believe this. And then the moment we start to put it back into the natural, we go, well, no, not everybody makes it forever. And this verse lets us know we're not in the natural. This is the verse that spiritualizes the whole Lazarus story. Because you know Jesus isn't a liar. And since everyone dies, Jesus must be talking about a different kind of death. And so the kind of death Jesus is talking about is whoever lives and believes in me, whoever finds his life in me, 
never actually dies, even though you know your physical man is going to die, there's something about you that gets to live, that gets to taste the life that doesn't look like this one. This is a natural body. There's something about those who believe on Jesus and in Jesus and live in Jesus and find their life in Jesus that never die. And that I firmly believe. And in that I can say I have encountered many people in my life who have never died. Who I believe because of who they were in Christ, what they did was stop breathing and their heart stopped beating and their physical body goes back into the earth But they never die because they have attained fully in that moment to the resurrection that already happened in their past. Now, we can sit here and go, yes, but they need to be resurrected in the body in the future. But I'm not here to proclaim that Jesus puts the resurrection out in front of Martha and Mary but that Jesus puts the resurrection as a possession for Martha and Mary. And the question he asks them is the question he asks you. Do you believe this? And her answer might shock you because, man, it shocks me. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world. She doesn't say, yes, Lord, I believe this resurrection stuff. Yes, Lord, I believe he's going to live again. Yes, Lord, I believe if I believe in you, I'll never die. Yes, Lord, I believe you're the resurrection and the life. She just says, you know what I do believe? I believe in you. Okay, this is good news because it gets you off the hook today. I love stuff that gets you off the hook, right? Come on, you can admit it too. I like to be let off the hook. When I'm on the hook, I want to be off the hook. Nobody wants to be on a hook. It's not a good place to be. You just get swallowed. I like to be off the hook, and how I'm off the hook here is that faith isn't lining everything up so I get all the theology right, quote all the scriptures right, understand justification, sanctification, eschatology, baptisms, gifts, get it all squared away, got it all just right. Faith is believing in Jesus, not just believing everything about Jesus or everything Jesus said or everything Jesus did. Some of that I'm growing into, some of that I'm growing around, some of that I'm moving away from, some of that I'm diving into head first because I'm on a journey of growth and you're on a journey of growth. But what doesn't waver is I believe in Jesus. I don't believe a bunch of stuff I used to believe, but I believe in Jesus. I don't believe a lot of theories and doctrines and ideas I used to believe, but I believe in Jesus. I don't know what I'm going to believe in a year from now about some of the things I think I've already got figured out, but I think some of those things aren't going to be as figured out in a year as they are today, but I believe in Jesus. And my salvation isn't what I know about the Old Testament or what I understand about covenantal theology or whether or not I've got eschatology just right. My salvation is just like Martha's. Yes, Lord, I don't know about all that other stuff, but I believe you're the Christ. I don't understand this deal about resurrection. I'm not sure what saved even means, but I believe in Christ. I don't know about grace. I don't know who's forgiven and who's not, but I believe in Christ. And if I can believe in Christ, Christ takes care of all the stuff that I can't believe in. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ that lives in me and the life I now live in this flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God. You know what that is in the Greek? It's exactly what it sounds like. I live my life by His faith. Woo, I don't live my life by my faith. Good good news that I don't live my life by my faith because my faith's like riding a roller coaster. Anybody else? Just me? Up, down, up, down, around, loop-de-loop, get off and throw up. And then foolish enough to get back on. That's me and my faith. Just jump back on, go, let's try it again. We'll get better this time. That's, that's the roller coaster, the journey of faith. But my, I'm not saved, lost, saved, lost, because I figured out the theology, because I changed my theology, because I got a different idea today than I had yesterday. I believe you are the Christ. So what is Jesus actually presenting to Martha? I believe what Jesus presents to Martha is that resurrection is a person and resurrection is a now event, not just a future event. In fact, I would even say that the more we think of resurrection as a future event, the less we appreciate resurrection as an event. 
Because you don't think of the cross simply as a past event. You think of the cross as a present event. Every time you meet, someone meets Christ, where do we take them? Oh, I cherish the old rugged cross. Why are you cherishing an event 2,000 years ago? Because you don't think it's just 2,000 years ago. You think it's relevant for now, that it matters, that it was as real then as it is now, and it is as real in a 1,000 years as it'll be today, as it was the moment it happened. So why not that with resurrection? Why not not presenting the resurrection as an event that someday, because you believed in Jesus, you get to live again, but rather... Because he resurrected once, you resurrected with him. And what you need to do is grow to the attainment of understanding that resurrection. Where where do we get this idea, Paul? Because we don't get that in John 11. That's way too much theology for John 11. And you're right. Because the Gospels don't pack in theology all the time. Sometimes Jesus makes a statement. Sometimes completely unqualified. And we go, wow. What do we do with that? Here, that was one of them where Jesus goes, if a man believes in me, he'll never die. And we go, whoa, wait a minute. People are dying like crazy. We need something more. Well, lo and behold, the Bible gives us something more because here comes Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church and he's on his way to Damascus and the resurrected Jesus shows up in the middle of the road and says, hey, how long are you going to kick against the thorn bush? If you persecute the church, persecute me. Wouldn't you like to know the truth? And scales come up over his eyes so that he never again sees things the same way. And when the scales fall off of his eyes, he's got a brand new vision of a brand new world and a brand new covenant. And so Paul goes out that day preaching a gospel of a resurrected Jesus and he believes he saw him. Now, you've got to make a decision right here in this sermon. I know, putting the pressure on you. You've got to make a decision in this sermon whether or not Paul actually saw the resurrected Jesus or Paul was just borderline psychotic. And there are people who kind of feel that way about Paul. Paul believed he saw the resurrected Jesus, and the resurrected Jesus gave him the new covenant. Now, that had been a hard pill to swallow if you were Peter, James, or John 20 years after the resurrection. And a guy comes along and goes, I saw the resurrected Jesus, and here's what he told me to preach. And that's why every now and then you get a little bit of abrasiveness in the New Testament, a little bit of this rubbing up against, because you got this guy who was killing Christians a moment ago who now says he saw the resurrected Jesus and things aren't the way you think they are, he said. In fact, I'm here to show you that things are hardly at all like you think they are. And don't tell me that you walked with you. This is Paul. This is Paul. This is Galatians chapter 1. And don't brag to me that you walked with Jesus every day when he was in his physical form. I saw him in his resurrected form, and resurrection trumps non-resurrection. <laughs> this, that's Galatians 1. Paul goes, I didn't have to go confer with anybody. I didn't go ask the other apostles. If they don't like it, they can lump it. He goes, this is... And Paul gets really kind of cocky in Galatians 1, and he even goes, I'll tell you what, if they preach any other gospel, let them be double cursed. Whoa, oh. Okay, I'll admit, I would have got me to maybe skip Paul's church for a couple weeks. If I'd have been going, I'd have went, hey, calm down on the whole double curse thing. By the way, that's the same guy that writes to the Romans and goes, bless and curse not. So we don't always practice what we preach. Or at least we don't always preach the same sermon two weeks, two books in a row. So Paul struggles a little bit with that. And I don't, I don't fault him. I'd struggle with it too because I struggle with far less heady stuff than the Apostle Paul had to deal with. So I'm going to give him 10 benefits of the doubt on that. But I also don't think he's crazy because what he presents is a better covenant with better promises. And it's a, it's a resurrected Christ. And it's a reality that goes out of the natural and into the spiritual in a world in which all of his peers were in the natural. His peers have natural temples, natural sacrifices, real blood, the smells of incense, and Paul comes along and goes, no, get rid of all of that stuff because Jesus is better than all of it, and the Holy Spirit's invisible. Think on the things that you can't see, not the things that you can see, and he internalized the message of salvation. Now, we've perverted that in some ways, I think, because we have gotten so into privatized Christianity that it's not about the externals, it's all about the internals, and that's caused us to be isolated islands that doesn't need the church, and we don't need anybody's ideas, and we don't need anybody, we don't need abrasiveness, we don't like abrasiveness, we don't want an argument, because if you're around people, you're going to disagree with people, and they're all stupid, and their theology's bad, and so I'll just go do my own thing, and um, and that doesn't work. How many of you know that doesn't work very long? The, the whole of the world is stupid, and they all got it wrong, doesn't work very long anybody in agreement with that it works for a little while until you're all by yourself and alone and then you realize you needed a brother or a sister and so as as we begin to to grow and develop in what we see as Paul's theology we start to internalize this Jesus let me show you a couple of Paul's instances Ephesians chapter 2 I want to try to, to walk you through just a couple of things that Paul thought about this resurrected life 
And then I want to land in that space that I told you a moment ago of I have something, but I haven't attained something. Because I think you probably agree with me on that. You know you're resurrected, but you haven't fully gotten this thing wrapped around it yet, right? Evidenced by the fact that it was really easy for all of you to amen that the cross is a reality, but it was tougher for you to amen the resurrection as a reality. And I know why it's tough, because it's tougher to attain. It's tougher to wrap our spirit mind around that. Let's see if Paul can help us. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's the old dead us in sin living like idiots. Agreed. He made us alive together with Christ, parentheses, by grace you've been saved. This is a great parenthesis, by the way. Let's just pause right here for a moment. You used to be dead in your sins. He made you alive. If you make something alive, what's that called? Resurrection. Look at verse, that verse says your resurrection happened with Christ. When did Christ's resurrection happen? 2,000 years ago. Your resurrection is with Christ, and then he knew his audience would struggle with that because that's not easy to swallow. So there's a parenthesis. It's by grace it happened. How much do you understand about grace? And his audience would have went, oh, not much. He goes, then that's how much you're going to understand about how alive you are. You don't have to wrap your mind around the whole thing. You can't comprehend grace either. If you can't comprehend grace, how are you going to comprehend being alive with Christ? But you accept grace as the free gift of God by faith. So what if you accepted resurrection as the free gift of God by faith? What if you treated resurrection and grace as the same idea? That if God gives me grace and I know I don't deserve it, then God must have resurrected me even if my physical man disagrees. My physical man goes, no, that ain't resurrection. Resurrection's a different thing. And he goes, that's okay. You don't get grace. I don't expect you to get resurrection. And by the way, I still don't think we grace people get grace. As much as we think we get grace. Because it's not just unmerited favor. It's not just favor we don't deserve. It's the whole life of God given to us for no charge. I don't understand how God does that. I don't even frankly understand why God does that. I know some people that really ought to have to pay for it. And I've been one of those people. So I can't tell God how to do it, why to do it, how it works, but I believe, according to what Paul says, that it, resurrection is much like grace. It's his work. It's his act. Six, he raised us up together made us set together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He raised us up. Not he will raise us up. My resurrection happened when his resurrection happened. I am coming into the knowledge of that resurrection as I meet Jesus. And that is as mysterious as grace. Where are you? He raised us up together, made us set together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The us is not in the text. He raised up together, made, set together in heavenly, in Christ Jesus. So I know we've added some pronouns there to try to find the collective. Is Paul talking about the Ephesian church and him? Is Paul talking about him and Jesus? Is Paul talking about the Ephesian church, Paul and Jesus? Difficult. We don't exactly know, but we can't work with what we don't know. We can only work with what we know. And what we know is we are raised up together collectively, not individually. Sounds to me like resurrection is as broad as the cross. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? We conclude that if one man died, all men died. We get that? So at the cross, if Jesus died, everybody died. So what happened at the resurrection? Jesus resurrected, all men resurrected, and our heavenly place is set in Christ. Now, coming to that is my faith journey. Because coming to that is what I'm walking in as I encounter Jesus. This is why you got to give people Jesus. Because what do you want them to know? You want them to know the life of God that's available through Christ. What are they right now? They're living as if they're dead in their sins and trespasses. Now, their cross and their resurrection's already happened. God's not going to do it again. Right? But you want them to be able to walk in it. You want them to be able to know it. Colossians chapter 3. 
Let me give you another one. Another one from Paul. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you then were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. If you were raised with Christ. Have you been raised with Christ? What's your answer? Yes. And I think Paul's answer is, you bet you were raised with Christ because Christ isn't going to raise twice. You raised up in him. So if you're raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Done deal. The death has already happened because the cross has already happened. So my death is in his death. My life is in his life. I am not only looking forward someday to my life, I am celebrating my life in the same way I celebrate my death in Christ. This makes Jesus correct in John 11 when he says to Martha, if a man believe in me, though he die, he shall live. Because now we realize we're not setting our mind on the natural things, we're setting our mind on the supernatural things. If you set your mind on the natural, Jesus lied at John 11 because people die. But if you set your mind on the supernatural, Jesus tells the absolute universal truth of heaven that there is no death in his resurrection. That when you come into what he has done, there is no end to what he will do for when Christ who is our life appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. And I know that we've set this as an eschatological event. Some people set this as an eschatological event in the future, that when Christ comes back, then they will be everything they should be. Some people set this as an eschatological event in the past, say AD 70, that Christ appeared. I'm not here to argue pro or con because I'm not sure Paul was giving you a prophecy of an eschatological timeline event. Paul's giving you a spiritual reality. When Christ appears, that's when you show up as what you really are. So when Christ appears in you, to you, through you, the real you shows up. That's why we need revelations of Christ constantly and consistently. The more Jesus appears, the more who we are appears. And then the more we get to walk into that life. Now, I want to land here in the next spot, because I already laid out for you that Paul sometimes goes this way, and that he zigs and then he zags. He zigs and then he zags. And you really want Paul to just be this straight line, but he's not, because he's human. Here's an example. In 1 Corinthians, Paul goes, I have heard it reported that some of you have divided yourselves off into little camps. And some of you say, I am of Paul. And I am of Kepha, Peter. And I am of Apollos. And he goes, let's not do that. That's carnal thinking. We're in Christ. Good job, Paul. Two chapters later, he sneaks into the book of 1 Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. (laughs) He can't help himself. He's like, I don't like the the little divisions you guys got going, but by the way, if you're going to divide, join my team. We got the best uniforms. Got the best benefits package. Those other guys, I don't know. So it just shows me that, that in the midst of, of laying out these realities, sometimes there's this little zigging and zagging. It's not Paul working against truth. It's Paul doing what we're doing, wrestling it out. And the real you shows up when you wrestle stuff out. And so you don't get everything right. And if you, if you want to pick the worst career that you can possibly pick, be a minister of the word and put your stuff out in, on social media. Because every time you get up, you're going to say something you're wrestling with, and that's all people are going to comment on. And so then the comment wall, which, by the way, never read, because the devil lives in the comment section. The comment wall is where people accent the thing you said that you were wrestling with that sounds a little bit like, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. Even though earlier in the sermon you said something totally opposite, this guy's a heretic. 
And then your heretic of the week because you had a statement in there that you were wrestling out and that maybe it's not exactly what you'd title your next book, but it sure is what got put up on social media as the representation of who you are. So I have a lot of pity on ministers. I have a lot of pity on people who vocalize their wrestlings out loud because who knows um, all that's being wrestled with. So I, I give Paul the benefit of a thousand doubts. But as he gets deep into his life, he's reflecting on resurrection. And he makes some admissions. Because if you read Ephesians and Colossians, it sounds like a done deal. We got it. We're sitting in heavenly places. We're resurrected. And then you read this Paul from Philippians 3. I like this Paul. I don't dislike the other Paul, but I like the real ones. I like when we wrestle stuff out and we sometimes say, I don't know. I love I don't knows. I love I don't knows better than yeses. If I ask somebody a question and they go down this long rabbit trail of an answer, I think, eh. I don't know. Some of that sounded like you've been watching too many videos. I can live with an I don't know because at least it's someone that knows that it's bigger than them. And I respect things bigger than me. So you go, I don't know. I got an idea. I got a couple thoughts. You know, I can share my thoughts, but I don't know. I don't land on it. I think this is the Paul right before his death. This is one of the jail letters, Philippians letters, right before his death where Paul starts to deal with resurrection again, and it sounds like this. Here's where we'll land. Verse 10 of Philippians 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I just want you to leave that scripture there for a moment and just see what you see in that first verse, that first line. I know I'm resurrected. I wrote Ephesians. I know I'm resurrected. I wrote Colossians. But you know what I really want to know? I want to know what in the world that means. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I'm not expected to wait till I die to get it. I want to know it now. And I got a feeling that the power of his resurrection means I've got a fellowship with his sufferings and conform to his death. That fellowship with his sufferings and conform to his death is the part we don't usually preach in this verse. We just go, boy, I want the power of his resurrection. How many of you here tonight want the power of his resurrection? Amen. Praise God. What do I do? Get ready to fellowship with his sufferings and conform to his death. Nobody amens that part because nobody preaches that part. Because no fool would say amen to that. If understanding what it means to really live is to fellowship with him on what it means to really die, do I want to really live? Paul gets to the end of his life and asks that question. It's a big question. If all of this is what it means to live, do I accept it? And I think the answer is yes, because he gets to Timothy and he goes, I've run a good race, I've finished my course, I kept the faith. I fellowshiped with his sufferings, I conformed to his death. I'm finding that's what resurrection really looks like, is to live a life so outside the norm, so outside the box as to call it the life of heaven on the earth, the life of the supernatural in the midst of the natural. If, by any means, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead? Oh, what in the world does this mean? What I really want to know is the power of the resurrected life. I think I'm going to suffer. I think it has to do with dying. I got all that stuff down. Technically, it's already happened. But what I really want to do is attain, and here's a better word from the Greek, I want to arrive at the resurrection from the dead. I want the resurrection of the dead that I know is the reality of my spirit, man. I want it to be where I am. I want to arrive at that resurrection. Now, Paul is a little circular in his arguments. We don't have, most of our evidence of Paul is that he rarely actually wrote anything himself. He almost always had someone else write for him while he spoke. This is why Paul's writings kind of do this, because we conversationally meander. We write with focus. It's why writing is really hard, if you've ever tried it. Writing is hard because we want to meander. And when you read meandering, it's exhausting, right? It's like, what is he talking about? This has been three pages of this rabbit trail. So writing is, is a constant delete. <laughs> delete that paragraph, start over. Ah, that didn't work, start over. Conversation, we just go, man. I mean, we're stopping at gas stations and grazing kids and, oh, they graduated. Oh, oh and then one time in 1978, or, or honey, was it 1979? Or wait, maybe it was 19... You, you ever hear those kind of stories? That's amazing to me when people start telling me a story and then they got to qualify it with the year and then they yell across the room at their spouse to get the year. I don't even know the story. Why do I need to know the year? One time in 82. Honey, was it 82 or 83? I don't know. What's honey supposed to know? She don't even know the story. 
That's how we talk. It just kind of goes like this and meanders. Paul's a little bit that way. If you don't believe me, read Romans top to bottom. He's got a really good thing going, and then he falls off the cliff. I mean, it's righteousness by faith, and we're all under the law, and then we're not, and Jesus delivered us, and then he gets to the ninth chapter, and it's Israel and the Gentiles. And he spends three chapters out there before he rounds his way back in about chapter 12 to get where he's going. So Paul has an epiphany in the prison cell writing the Philippian letter or conversing it to someone and he realizes he needs to qualify it because he's not lost on resurrection. He just don't quite have it yet. So he stops and he takes a a zig and a zag and he says this in verse 12. Not that I've already got it or that I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended. That word is, brethren, I don't count myself to have got it. But one thing I do, I forget the things that are behind, and I reach forward to the things which are ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many of us as are mature, have this mind. Ready? Here comes his landing spot. If any of you think otherwise, let God reveal it to you. He goes, you may disagree with me. I'll pray God reveal it to you. He goes, here's where I am right before I die. This is what I'm thinking. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already got it, walk by that same rule and be of the same mind. Walk in what you've comprehended. Don't wait till you've comprehended it. Walk in what you've comprehended. What's resurrection to you? Future event? Okay, walk in that. Someday you live, I think you're cheating yourself. I think Paul thought you were cheating yourself. I know Jesus thought you were cheating yourself. But if that's where you want to stop, stop. You don't have to wrestle it out anymore. You're just, you're his, just keep believing on Jesus. That's what Martha said. Lord, I don't know if I believe that resurrection bit, but I believe you're Christ. All right. You believe he's Christ? All right. What about the other stuff? What's resurrection mean to you? Does it mean that you could experience heaven on earth? Does it mean that you could experience the life of God in the natural realm? That maybe if you were less concentrated on the natural and a little more concentrated on what you don't see, that you gave that some of your time, some of your attention, some of your faith, you might be able to see the resurrection transpire in your life. I think that's where Paul lands at the end of it. And he goes, I want to know that. He goes, I don't think I've got it all, but I'm on my way. And walk it out to the degree you've already got it. See, I believe in resurrection now. That does not mean that I don't believe that God resurrects us in the natural realm. But I believe that our resurrection has already been accomplished in Jesus. The same Jesus that won't die twice, won't raise twice. When I came to Christ, he didn't re-die. I just entered into his death. And you know what else I simultaneously entered into? As many of us as were baptized into his death, were raised into his life or his resurrection. So when I met Jesus and met his death, I instantly met his resurrection. I walked right into how alive Jesus is. Now, the degree to which I know that, I walk in it. The degree to which I don't know that, I don't walk in it. I do not condemn what I do not know, and I do not condemn what you do not know. Paul said, let's have that same mind. Let's walk in that same rule. If you don't have that, he goes, I pray God reveal that to you. I'd like to know the power of his resurrection. I only know it to a certain extent. I can only walk in what I've grabbed hold of. I can't walk in what I haven't grabbed hold of, but I wish you'd walk in whatever you've grabbed hold of. So you go, I'm not satisfied, preacher, with what I've grabbed hold of. Great, wonderful. If you're not satisfied with what you've grabbed hold of, go to Jesus and start where Martha starts. I don't know about this other stuff. I believe in Christ. And whatever's real about your resurrection, I want it to be real in me. Whatever's real about your death, I want it to be real in me. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? And just right where you are, it's just not, not, a, not a challenge prayer or a repeat prayer. Just, just think about these words that we've talked about a little bit today. Think about resurrection for a moment and what it means to you. Think about the cross and what Jesus accomplished there, how that's a once event. You're not going to get that twice. If that be true, what about a resurrection that was a once event That is also an event that's in your reality right now. And if that's true, how much are you walking that out? Is for you Christianity just dying to a bunch of stuff all the time and hoping that someday you get to live with Jesus? If that is you, 
Walk what you've grabbed hold of. Believe on Jesus. Maybe for you, resurrection is a reality you're starting to tap into. You're starting to realize that there's a joy unspeakable and full of glory. You're starting to realize that there is peace that passes all understanding. You're starting to realize that there's more than meets the eye. That it's not all going to hell in a handbasket, but that the kingdom of God is expanding upon the earth and that you believe that it can happen in your life and you'd like to see it. If that's you, grab hold of that. Walk in what you've attained. Wherever you are on the spectrum... He's there with you. Not condemning you, not mocking you, not going, why don't you believe more? No, he's standing there outside of your tomb saying to you what he said to Martha, do you believe this? And if you get to the end of the prayer and you go, all I can really believe is Jesus. Well, congratulations. That's the great place to start. Don't ever leave that spot. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Christ, whatever that looks like. Father, I thank you that you're doing a work right now that I cannot do, I won't even try. I'm not here to change people. I'm here to shine a light on Jesus and get out of the way. You do the changing, you do the transferring, you do the gracing, you do the blessing, you do the resurrecting. Father, to the degree to which we have attained that in our own walk, may we walk it out and to the degree of which we seek Christ by faith and to understand the power of his resurrection, then Father, may we walk in that too. In Jesus' name. And don't let it stop today. Let it start today. In Jesus' name, amen. Resurrection, now. Whatever resurrection looks like in the future, Paul said, that's, that's celestial. 1 Corinthians 15, he goes, that's celestial. All you're thinking is terrestrial. He goes, celestial resurrection is a whole new animal. Whatever, whatever celestial resurrection looks like, we ain't even seen it. But the resurrection we have seen is the life we get to live in Christ. Go out and live that life. Don't waste it. Don't squander it. Go live it. It's yours. Enjoy it. Well, I don't understand much about it. That's okay. Walk what you understand. Whatever you've grasped, live that. Keep Christ as the centerpiece of faith. Go walk that out. Watch what Christ does with just a little bit. I leave you with this thought. Jesus said if it was just the size of a mustard seed we'd move mountains. So what if you walked out of here today and all you had was, I don't know about any of that stuff, but I believe in Jesus. Good place to start. Good place to start. Love you, church. Appreciate you. It's a thrill every year to get to come and spend a few days with you. It goes too quickly every year. I can't believe we're done and about to head home. Um, But I'm always honored and I'm always thankful and I circle these days on my calendar to come be a part of Grace Life. Your, Your success your blessings, your favor are part of our prayers. We are believing God for great things for you. And you, you're so kind to us. You treat us so well. We do what Jesus told us to do. I, was, I try to do this because I'm under the instructions of my master. That if we are received, to leave our peace with the house. Well, I cannot even put into words the peace that the Father has put into me in these hours of stress. And so I leave some of that with you because that's what Jesus told me to do. I don't know how he does that. I don't have to know. I just believe in the Jesus of peace. I do know that whatever you leave in Christ, you're not diminished. You give some of your love, you don't have a little less love. Oh boy, I gotta quit giving out so much love. There's an emptiness, no. So you give your peace, you don't have less peace. I don't know how he does that, but he does it. So his peace we leave with you. A peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name, God bless you. Pastor Jamie.